Portobello Talk Radio, the official state broadcaster of the People's Republic of North Kensington, where the truth comes first. The future is yet to be written. Let it go, pay a fair, all you need.
Welcome to Flipside London Radio Show on Portobello Radio. Uh, our very special guest tonight, one of the, the pioneers of London's pirate radio scene, Mr. Michael Williams from DBC, who we just played there, striving to be free by the Radio Rebels. And you, sir, I believe, were a Radio Rebel. I was indeed. You were. Yeah. And uh, we started, as usual, with uh, Stormy Gale with Flipsville. Uh, went into striving to be freed, Radio Rebels. Who was uh, everyone on your station, basically, uh, uh, chucked into that one, weren't it? Well, actually, it was Night Doctor, the band, uh, who provided the music. And it was Ranky Miss P who was singing. And then it went into Lepke, who did the, did the rap. And uh, Dr. Watt, Chucky and Oliver did the backing vocals. I stayed way out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, the history of DBC, probably... Still much loved. You still see the T-shirts around, the great logo that is instantly, as soon as you see it, you know, oh, yeah, there's the DBC. Yeah, it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the, the T-shirt, it's a long story, and it all evolves out of better badges, really, which is the other reason I'm sitting here waffling yeah. with you guys. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like certain characters <coughs> weave in and out of the story. I work with uh, Jolly, who's now in... Uh, New York City at Better Badges. Yeah. Um, so for those people who don't know Better Badges, every, anyone who went to a punk gig, 76, 77, when did Better Badges start? Um, I think 76 is the official right. s- start. Yeah, 76 is probably probably the official start time, yeah. And uh, I sort of got involved because the, the hot summer of 76, I was uh, house-sitting for Eric Idle. I had this beautiful house in St. John's Wood, and I was in the lap of luxury, and after a couple of days, the doorbell went, and I opened the door, and there was Jolly with his push bike with a badge-making machine on the back of it, and he moved in on me. 
Right. Where Which, was this in St. John's Wood? Where did he live in St. John's Wood? Carlton Vale. Ah, right, okay. Yeah. yeah. And it was fantastic because I had I had work in the house to do, which I used to do in the middle of the night because it was so hot in yeah. the day, just like these last few few right, weeks. Right, right. And Jolly would sit in the kitchen and he would cut out images out of comics and other bits and pieces, press them up into badges, cycle off to God knows where, Kensington, the gate here, anywhere, flog them off, and that used to sustain him for money and entertainment and all the rest of it. Yeah, well, yeah. So then I, I, I headed off to Scandinavia, and he's, I don't know where he headed off to, but when I came back, he had set up better badges, and he was working out of a lock-up garage in Stephen's Muse. Right. And I can't, I can't, I'm a bit sort of flaky in my memory. And, and anyhow, he phoned, phoned me up one day, and he said, oh, I've got a broken window. Do you think you're able to fix it? Because I used to do a bit of bodging, do it yourself. I was actually useless at it. Yeah. So I went down and I fixed this window in his garage for him and then put some shelving up. And then a week or so later, he said, oh, would you come and help me? And I said, doing what? And he said, oh, I've got five nights at the Roundhouse. The, the Stranglers are doing a run of gigs there. So I said, okay. And that's how I really got involved with Better Badges and with Jolly, working with him full time, because we did this five nights where we had a badge stand, which was <coughs> in a prime position, right between the gents' toilets and the ladies' toilets. So I we remember had, it well, man. So we used to have girls waiting for their boyfriends and boys waiting for their girlfriends. And they'd stand there and look at the wall where there was this ramshackle sort of, you know, uh, wall covered in bits of paper with the badge name and the badges on it, and they would all buy a badge. So it was an incredible business, and we got the pitch there for every Sunday. Yeah. When there used to be those wonderful... The punk nights. Well, it used to be... The, the, the promoter used to try and do a wonderful varied night. So you might have a rock band, a reggae band, a punk band, or you know, any combination, yeah. providing it brought, brought the punters in. Yeah, yeah. And at the end of the night, he used to come along and give us his street posters and say flog them off for us which we did and we had to sort of give him the money for what we sold and then he took a cut from our taking so if we had a band if he had a band playing that had a popular badge he yeah. made more money right. off the cut that he got off our stand and he also used the stand as a market research because obviously you know Jolly had his finger on the pulse yeah and people used to come up to us and say oh you should do a badge for you know Joe Bloggs and The Undertakers or whatever we do it and then find that you know three weeks later they're booked at the Roundhouse sort of thing so it was <laughs> it was it was a fun you know <laughs> it was a fun time we worked out of this lock up garage in Stephen's Muse at the time which was another sort of uh, incredible thing because people used to think you know they used to phone up and they'd say oh we want to come down and we want you to make a badge and we'd give them the address and they'd look around looking for us we were in this lockout garage where Jolly actually lived at the time as <laughs> I may right, hasten okay. to that. Jolly are you listening because I'm just going to spill all the beans now uh, <laughs> was this in the squatting days was he squatting it or no, this, was po- this, was, this was post squat this oh, was post squat okay, he yeah, used yeah. to squat with my brother that's how right. I got to know yeah, Jolly okay. and uh, and over the road from where he used to squat was a, a designer called Megan Green and she came and worked with us at Better Badges. So we were, it, was like, it was like a little family affair. I mean, Jolly also had 
some other sort of uh, Grove musicians working for him, you know, part-time. He had Sandy from the from the Pink Fairies who used to do the mail order, he used to come in at sort of 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, bits worse for wear from the night before, work for a couple of hours and then make enough money to go to the Alex and all that sort, right, of, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, sort yeah. of thing. So it was, it was a very ad hoc business. And then it moved up a gear because <clears throat> the business was not only making badges for punk bands and making badges for us to mail order which, which, and wholesale, which was very successful. Yeah. We also made them as a, as a commercial venture. So we had advertising agencies, uh, pressure groups, all sorts of people would phone up and say, oh, we want a badge. And we'd say, how many colors? And we'd say, four colors. Okay, and it cost you so much. So their print, um, you know, if, if, say, you know, Joe Bloggs, you know, Free Joe Bloggs Society wanted a yeah. badge, and they came on with a four-colored uh, design, they'd get charged for the setup. And, of course, better badges, badges would tack on to the end of the print yeah, run. and you'd have the four colors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. right. So it was a very successful... <laughs> Dynamic operation, yeah. Yeah, they were everywhere. Though. I remember the stall because I used to live near the Roundhouse. And Sunday nights, we was always in it because you know you, you read in Steve Jones' book that he was the Phantom of the Opera, the Hammersmith Odeon. I was the Phantom of the Opera of the <laughs> Roundhouse, and we knew everywhere bunking. Yeah, a couple of times we had mates that were on the door, so we got in to see load. But I always used to go to your stall. So I must have bought a badge off you. You used to have all the stuff on the walls. That's right. That's when they had the little concourse and used to walk upstairs into the... When the roundhouse was good. We were actually at the side of the stage between the two. So we used to get... Yeah, the, what I really used to like was getting in and when we used to set up because we used to see the bands do sound checks. Right. In fact, one of the most impressive bands for sound check that I ever saw was the Boomtown Rats. Right. Who, okay, they were a good professional... You know, live band, but in their sound check, they just ran through old Rolling Stones numbers and you know R and B stuff. It was completely right. you know just to get that sound, right? Know, and then never... pretended they hate them while they're well, on stage. Well, maybe so, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe no, I so. don't think they're the only punk bands you could accuse of that. So yeah, I don't, and you had ads in all the music papers, as I remember, and uh, all the even Virgin, the Virgin, they always had loads of badges. Were they yours? Uh, they could well have been. I, I yeah. don't remember ever dealing with Virgin, but the the what we used to do, or what Jolly used to do, is do a top ten. Yeah, which used to go into the enemy. We had a, a an arrangement with the enemy. There was a top ten at the particular uh, at the back. I think it was in the top left hand corner. Uh, I think you've used the top ten on your yeah, graphic yeah, for this yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, I grabbed that off the internet, um, and that was dominated by the Clash Police badge, which seems to be number one for years, <laughs> years yeah. at a time. That, that, but it was accurately done. It wasn't. Yeah. A, it wasn't a fabricated thing, and it gave shops and and uh, probably record companies an idea of what's going on. Yeah, you know, so people did take notice of it. No, they did. I I've still got a tin at home. I think most of them must be yours. Of loads of yeah, yeah. That's that's. I'm, You're a lucky man because I had a badge collection which was all the, all the rareties. Yeah, and they got thrown out by someone downsizing the flat one time. No. Yeah. Did you do the stiff badges as well? No, stiff were actually they oh, were right. one of the inspirations behind better badges. We did some of them. Yeah, but the the the, the original stiff badges which had really snappy logo, um, slogans they did for themselves. Right. But when Ian Jury went on the road with. Um, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll set. Uh, they couldn't cope with manufacturing it, so we took over doing it not for Stiff, but for their agency, which was above Stiff, which yeah. is Black Hill Enterprises. So we get phone we get phone calls because 
we used to make them. We never put them in a set. Um, so it was a sex, drugs, rock, roll. That's right. So we used to get we used to get phone calls. Oh, anymore. we need more sex, and you know, you, know, you can imagine the phone calls between <laughs> them and us, and us and uh, the factory. Yeah, oh, we yeah, need yeah. more drugs. You know, it's, it's did just, you do the, the? I used to have the Generation X ones as a ready, steady go. Did you do? No, those we ones? didn't do that. All oh, right, we they didn't don't. do that. Well, we won't talk about them much. No. We're not interested in much. So then, better badges. You know, Jolly got the, uh, the the postal address we have for the mail order, and this is where it all links in with DVC as well. Yeah, because it's the legendary two eight six four Tabella Road, right, yeah, which yeah. we used for you know because it was a it was a post box uh, facility. But Jolly moved in there and then took uh, you know took over the place, and we had something like three floors. And um, we had, you know, it was quite a, a thriving... Is that the old Friends? But I used to no, it's over friends. the road from Friends. Oh, right, okay. It's now the Portobello Art and... I think it's the Art and Craft Shop. Yeah, I know the way it you mean. It used to be yeah, called yeah. the Bell Press. But it had... Yeah. That particular building had a long history of uh, alternative activities. Yeah. underground the, uh, stuff. Yeah. 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 So, how did badge making lead to pirate radio stations? Okay, so... Towards the end of my tenure at working with Jolly, uh, I came in one morning and there was this little metal box under our workbench with a huge tangle of wires. And he said to me, oh, I bought a radio transmitter. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. Just, you know, I don't, you know, it's a medium wave. I don't know what we're going to do with it. So it was there for quite a while. And then I left and... In the t- between the time I left and uh, DVC being started up, Jolly actually said to me that he used to transmit to himself from the top floor to the basement where at that time he had printing presses, pr- you know, pressing, printing for badges and for fanzines. So he never really had it set up because it, it was a medium wave transmitter and medium wave's incredibly complicated right. to establish a, uh, an aerial. And then about a month or so later, Lepke was let go from Honest John's. And Lepke and I have been firm friends. I mean, if you read my yeah. blog, which I'm writing it, the establishment... So, Lepke, for people who don't know, who's, who's this Lepke character? Lepke is the person who started Dread Broadcasting Corporation. Right. So he was given by Jolly the transmitter. So he's, he was an incredible sort of person for fiddling around with a bit of electronics took it up to his house in Neasden and set up an aerial and started broadcasting. And he called it Rebel Radio. Right. And you have to put it into context. In those days, uh, I mean, radio was non-existent, really. I mean, reggae radio, I mean, mid-70s, you had TV on reggae on Capital, but... Then it went to Radio London. You had the Radio London show in the middays where you had Tony Williams alternating with Rodigan. Rodigan then left there and went to Capital and had his Capital Saturday show. And that yeah. was about all you had of reggae programming until yeah. Rebel Radio came along. So Lepke used to set, the, set, set, set the, the radio up on a Sunday afternoon and start transmitting when Tony Williams' show finished on a Sunday afternoon. And he used to phone. <coughs> he used to phone myself. I was lodging at the time in Latimer Road with Charlie Wood, and we'd always forget to try and tune in. 
and we get, we'd get this phone call. Can you, can you hear anything? And we didn't even have a radio. We had a, a music centre which had a radio in it. Right, and, and this is all on medium wave. This is all on medium wave. There we go. Yeah, there we go. Um, <laughs> it was all on medium wave, so we used to try and pick it up and we couldn't hear a thing. And I later heard from Miss P that she used to get the same phone call about half right. an hour later. But anyhow, they used to maybe have an audience which would go out maybe a mile from around... Right. His house, although Neeson's high up. Yeah, it's pretty high up. But man. it's the technicalities of medium wave transmission. Right, it's the aerial. So he did that for for uh, for you know several months, I think. I mean, the original DJs were himself, his good friend, the late Chucky, and Doctor Watt, and they used to pre-record a show and then put it onto an open reel tape. And just let the tape roll for the right. afternoon until the DTI came in and busted them one afternoon. So what, he had the aerial on the roof of his house? No, it wasn't on the on the roof. It was, I th- I'm not sure. I seem to recall him telling me it was on, like, the clothesline. Because you have to have, like, a 45 foot... That's right, mm. yeah. yeah. It's absolutely crazy. It's really, yeah. you know, so he, he had that set up. Anyhow, they came in and busted him. And they were decent enough to let him finish his Sunday lunch before they <laughs> <laughs> he took you away. So there was the radio station without a radio transmitter. So in the meantime, how I got involved was, obviously I was a friend of Lepke's and we used to hang out together. He used to come to Latimer Road regularly. When he used to come down the Grove, he would stop off by us. And uh, I said to him, well, all these people are saying we want to hear the radio station. What about the open reel tapes? Let's dupe them up. Yeah. At that time, I was unemployed. I was looking for a way of making a bob or two. Not that I made a bob or two, because the money we made went into Rebel Radio. Mm. And so I used to take the open reel tape and take it down to a place in King's Cross and get them to dupe up 30... You know, they do it real time. they are dupe up 30 tapes at a time. So this is yeah, cassettes? Yeah. yeah, onto cassette. Yeah. And while they were doing that, I'd go off and have some lunch and a sandwich or something, come back and pick them up. We'd flog them off or you know, sometimes give them away to people to tune people into the station. And that money went into you know, just basically setting it up. Right. So then it then became DBC after I had a, an inspired stone moment in the middle of the night one night, I woke up, because Latimer Road is just around the corner from where the BBC used to right. be. And I thought, BBC, DBC, Dread Broadcasting Corporation, DBC. It was a great name, must be said. So, <clears throat> I'm not, you know, uh, blowing my own trumpet. Well, here, I think you should if you did okay. think that one up. Blow could your you, own trumpet. You, uh, Go on. Pass me my yeah. trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um... I can remember Lepke coming round with Dr. Watt one, you know, the next day, and I said, I thought, a great name for the radio station. He said, what's that? I said, DBC, Dread Broadcasting Corporation. I remember Lepke sort of looking at me, smiling, laughing, and he said, that's it, DBC, Rebel Radio, and the station was born. Mm. And the logo, who did the logo? Right, well, this links back to... Uh, Megan Green, who right, was yeah. the, she was a freelance, yeah, she was a freelance graphic designer and designer and painter. And when I was at Better Badges, I used to collect bits, scraps of graphics and stuff, just for I don't know why, but I used to collect them. And I handed her 
uh, a photocopy of uh, it was a, f- a French record label's label, which was the Dread. But the Dread was looking the other way, and not as good looking. Yeah. And she took that and some other bits and pieces, and she assembled that design. And the typeface on the design was the Better Badges typewriter, which she you know typed it out and then blew it up. It's a work of genius. No, yeah, it's good. It's a great logo. And she did it out because she knew Lepke. She she originally did Lepke's uh, I and I Survive badge, which is where how I got to know him. Right. Back in seventy seventy seven, um, and it was in the, it was those days when everyone just sort of did things for everyone you know it wasn't you know it was pre-thatchery yeah 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 still a bit it was the arse end of the hippie era around here as well it was the hippie ethos is that why you were around here was you a bit of a hippie in those days definitely yeah Yeah. I know Jolie was yeah 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 (laughs) well I must admit I'm not going to upset anyone by by saying but this whole punky reggae thing I dismiss and I call it the hippie reggae yeah, well, it was, it was still, you know, Goldbourne Road, you'd go on about, in your blog, uh, Honest John's been in Goldbourne Road, that's where I used to buy me punk singles, and right. there's always hippies behind the counter. Well, it was Le- Lepke, Lepke worked in there. All right, okay. A couple of days a week, and then, he, you know, he relocated down to, after Maroon's Tunes shut down, he relocated yeah. to, uh, well, he, yeah, he relocated to Portobello Road. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you got the design, you got the name. So now you need another transmitter. Yeah, so we used to schlep around. So what did, sorry, interrupt. What did they do when you got nicked by these people? What did they do? They give you a fine. Uh, to be honest, I yeah. wasn't there, but he yes, Le- Lepke and Doctor Watt got fined. Right. So uh, you got went to magistrates. Court. They went to the magistrates court up in Harleston, and right. I, I'm not sure whether they pleaded guilty or not. But hmm. it was a. It, to, you know, to unemployed people, it was a fortune. Yeah, but. and how many how many pirate stations? Because the eighties are always known as uh, a, there was a massive boom in London. So I don't know about the rest of the country, but yeah. I always listened to pirate stations, yeah. Kiss, Invicta, all these sort of people. But in the late seventies, there wasn't any. And none. How many pirate stations were on the go? Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. Uh, <clears throat> there were quite a few, but they were, they, they were all sort of diverse. There were people trying to be smashy and nicey and all that right. sort of stuff, you know. So a bit of hangover from Radio Caroline and. Well, they weren't even as as classy as Radio Caroline. <laughs> so you had a, it was a barge on the canal. Yeah, and then you got a lot of sort of like soul stations yeah, yeah. popped up where the the DJs were being trying to be ultra slick and they were just self promoting. Yeah. It was a thing of, you know, self promoting their their club nights. Their club nights. Right, okay. Yeah, so but it wasn't a, a reggae one. No, no, definitely not. So so you got a logo, you got a name, now you need a transmitter. We needed a transmitter <laughs> and that was the next problem <clears throat> because Again, I wasn't really involved in it. I wish Dr. Watt was here because he could help me with the memory on this one. But they did pick up a transmitter from someone else, who, which was an FM transmitter. Right. But uh, that didn't last more than an hour being on air. It was so badly built, I believe it blew up. Right. So, again, we were still without a transmitter. So who used to build these things? Where would you get that them was, from? That was the big problem because yeah. building a transmitter is not a... No, yeah, I can imagine. Not yeah, an yeah. easy thing, but... So, <clears throat> we, we, we touched base with uh, a group of people called R Radio, who were uh, an open radio association. Um, and they were based, or the, the people were hanging out in a squat up in Kilburn. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the deal which we struck up, or they struck up with anyone, was that you, know, you could borrow their transmitter, you could take it, you could put it wherever you wanted to, but you were responsible for it while it was in your possession. So if it got busted and taken, you You'd had, have to you, replace you it. had to replace it. So we did that for, for a little while. We used to go and pick the, the transmitter up from them in Kilburn on a, on a Thursday evening, maybe, set up on the, on the Friday, do our pre-recorded show, and then return it on the Saturday or the Sunday. And that went on for quite a while. And you were sticking the aerials on top of tower blocks. Well, that was one of the other big problems, was finding places to, you know, a good location yeah. was uh, worth its weight in gold. I mean, <clears throat> before we, while we were do, doing that, we, we tried a, a place up in Kilburn one time, but it wasn't very good, until we found the location that we eventually came to use pretty much full-time, which was the Edward Woods estate at Shepherd's Bush. Right, that's the, that's the one opposite Westfield by the West Cross route, yeah? I guess, I guess so. Those three... Oh, I'm a Westfield-free zone. Yeah, yeah I don't know, I don't know. No. But, you know, by the roundabout, when you yeah. come down that yeah. bit of motorway yeah, there, just off the Westway, yeah, yeah. Just before you get to Royal Crescent there. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know what you yeah. mean. And the beauty of that place was that there was three tower blocks, and yeah. they were all identical. Um, and they were all the roofs were all unlocked for the most part yeah so we figured out how to get into the into the block um which is usually just standing outside the front door wait for someone to go in <laughs> and we'd walk in there'd be dr watt lepke and myself you know carrying a pole with an aerial on it and bags with with the transmitter in it and and cables and stuff like that. Did it all that. fit in the lift? Yeah, it all fitted no, in the lift. Handy. We used to get some very fun <laughs> we used to get some very funny looks from people as if to say because well, you know we were setting up to go on there yeah, at six right. o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just at the time when people were coming back from shopping or whatever, you know, yeah. coming back from work. But they used to have a, a door entry system which relied on a magnetic strip which so that when the door shut the the magnet in the door used to lock the door. So what we used to do is we used to take a bit of brown tape and just put that over the magnetic strip. So the next time we wanted to go back, you just pull the door open. Right, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, trade secret. Yeah, but it, it, it was quite hard. You wouldn't get away with that these days. It was quite easy to get into tower blocks in those days, though. Yes. Even Trellick, you could just walk into Trellick. Right, well, Trellick did actually cause us some problems because we did contemplate using Trellick. Yeah. I would have, yeah. Uh, but Trellick was... Um, I don't know if it still is, covered in police telecommunication. Ah, oh, was it? Ah, I didn't know so that. So that was one of the reasons we never used Trellick, because we would have interfered with the police's signals. Yeah. And then there was a lovely train going by. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's all part of the atmosphere here yeah. at Port Bella Radio. Yeah. I've got me freedom pass. Yeah, they all, they're all fans. They're all listening. They'll toot in a minute. You wait and see. So then there was the other problem with someone did a base jump off Trellick Tower. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Just shoot didn't open. Yeah. yeah. So then it became really problematic with all tower blocks, that all the tower blocks were supposed to be locked. Right, okay. And the ones at Edward Woods Estate started to get locked. Yeah. Although sometimes, you know, the caretaker was sloppy and would leave one open. So we'd go to, you know, one, it, wasn't, yeah. it was locked. We'd go to the next one, it was locked. Oh, the, that one's open. So we used that tower block right. that time, yeah. Yeah, it was. It ran fairly successfully until they got locked permanently, and then yeah. it was a 
different story altogether. So what did you do when you didn't have tower blocks? I, I shudder and I shake when I think about it now. So you're doing lots of sort of Spider-Man stuff, where? We were doing a Spider-Man thing, <laughs> 22 floors up. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, but after... That's dedication, though, to the reggae cause. Yeah, I would but after you've that. had a beer and a spliff, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's fairly okay. But yeah, what we, had to do, we used to do is we used to sit and guard the transmitter. Right. So it was getting in was okay and getting out was okay. But then we started, we uh, had a different, well, we didn't use to guard the transmitter because the place was locked. And we were very lucky that um, someone who was a friend of Dr. Watts lived on the estate in the low rise. And he invited us round to his place and we used to sit and monitor the signal in his flat. And he, in fact, later became a DJ. So it was wonderful. So you did all this, this is all done, you had a tape deck rigged up to the transmitter, is that the right? The transmitter was a small box, oh, I can't, can't uh-huh. imagine how, how big it is, probably the size of your... So it can't be big mix. if you were lugging it upstairs No, no, and no, stuff. no, yeah, it's yeah. tiny, yeah. and we had a really low-tech cassette deck. Yeah. But the trick was recording the shows and queuing up the tape. So when a tape went into the tape deck to record and you started recording, there's no gap at the beginning. Right. And there, there, although there would have been a gap at the end, when the show f- finished, we got taking one tape out, putting the next tape in down to a T, and you couldn't hear the join. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, was, uh, it, was, it was very good because we used to get people writing to us saying, oh, we want to come down to your studio for an interview and all this sort of stuff. And we say, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's all top secret. Yeah, people thought we were on air. The thing is, there's a good story right. in your blog where Lep give you had a competition. He used to find a phone box where that used to work. Yeah, and he used to say, phone in now. And like, while the show was on, he'd be standing in the phone box answering the calls. So, it, so you were giving out the illusion that you actually had a show. We should try that one, shouldn't we? Yeah. I know we've got mobile phones these days, eh? No, never mind. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the, this is all pre-mobile phones. It was pre-so yeah. much technology, so much media as well. So, yeah, Lepke was brilliant. That was a, a, an absolute... He Because he in those days, the phone boxes used to receive calls, but not a lot of them did, yeah. if you know what I mean. They, yeah, yeah. they would disable a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, people would go into a phone box and say to someone, phone me back. Yeah, or they yeah. wouldn't show the number. But he used to suss out phone boxes. And he used to know where in his show he would have to go and be at the phone box. Right. So what if he gets there and there's some mad old lady in there, which nah, was the bane of your life yeah, in the phone box so, days? <laughs> and someone and she hears the door, she hears the phone go and yeah. they say, oh, the answer's Bob Martin, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we used, to, we used to get quite... It was great because we used to get, you know, the, the, the coverage of the radio station was, was... I think we sort of estimated about 40-mile radius of right. Shepherd's Bush. Yeah, but it must be that high up as well, you know. It's, yeah, we it's had a very... flat, isn't it, London? Well, the transmitter that we used was, was brilliant. I mean, yeah. we dropped it a couple of times, still worked. Right. Yeah, it was just brilliant. I mean, the guy who, who we did get to, to build it for us was... A boy genius. Uh, by this time, you had a, you found a boy genius to we build found you your the, own one. Yeah, we found the boy genius who did it. Um, and how tall was the aerial? Well, you brought it up there in bits and then assembled it on the roof. The yeah? actual aerial was only itself was only about maybe three foot 
Really? Long, but then oh, we shit. put it onto, onto like, we had um, broomsticks or we had a right. bit of, you know, 4B2 or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strap it up. Just and lash it to something. That's right. A bit of gaffer tape. Plenty of gaffer there tape. There you go, yeah. I'll tell you what, we'll play a couple of tunes. Okay. And then uh, we'll come back and we'll talk some more uh, Rebel Radio. Uh, play a bit of dub because uh, not enough dub gets played on the radio anyway, even these days. <laughs>
Right, so we just listened to African Dub Chapter 3, one of the big dub albums. Indeed. I mean... All four chapters were big in their day. Yeah. I think you can only still get Chapter 2 at the moment. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen them floating around. You can listen to them on YouTube if you want to. Yeah, yeah. yeah if you want yeah, to check them out. legitimate pressings, I think, only yeah. Volume 2. Is, is it? Chapter 2 is available. All right, this is on vinyl, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, all right. And uh, after that, we had a Bag of Wire dub from uh, King Tubby. The Immortal King Tubby, which I'm sure, sure these tunes got played on DBC yeah, we back should, in the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tubby mixed so much stuff back back then. So, all right. So back back to the DBC story. So you just started. When did when did it start getting big? When you know, like you you started off doing Friday nights for three or four hours. You've got onto the tower blocks. You've got an FM. You've got your own transmitter. When did you decide to expand it? Uh, well, that came a few years later. Yeah. yeah. But just backtracking to our radio, another um, <coughs> misconception was that The Clash were on DVC. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, The yeah. Clash were never on DVC. <laughs> but Joe was a very good friend of Lepke's. And uh, he, beca- you know, he was a great fan of DVC, as was Paul Simonon, who used to live in um, Oxford Gardens at right. the time. And... They approached us and they said, "Oh, we, you know, we want to do a radio program." So we set them up with our radio. And Paul, they they made this 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 uh, radio clash show. Uh, <clears throat> and they went to our radio, and Paul and and Joe got their hands dirty and took the transmission. They found somewhere, hooked it up, and transmitted it. It's a it's a killer show. Right, it's a killer show. What yeah. were they playing? Reggae? Um, yeah, it was a few little bits of reggae, R&B, rock and roll. It was, it was an eclectic mix. Right. But what was really brilliant was at the time Mikey Dredd was working with them. Yeah. And he did, he did, a, he did a track where he's just uh, toasting in the studio. And it's a really, really good rhythm he's going over. His studio smoky, smoky. Yeah. And he does a DVC advert. As does Joe. Joe says, tune in to DBC every Friday, 6 till 12. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't get more supportive than that. And then about a year later, I mean, we were, we were doing stuff. Well, maybe a year later, two years later. Didn't he, didn't he chuck some money at you as well, Strummer? Yeah, they, they, gave, they gave us some money. Yeah. Yeah, they gave us some money. It was just several times, a couple of times. Once in, in the form of a, of a donation. And then one Saturday morning, I got because I was the only one with the telephone. Not yeah. Miss P, she had a phone. Um, I got a ph- phone call from Cosmo Vinyl, who was the PR man, road manager. I don't know what his exact title was, <laughs> uh, 
And I don't know how he got my number, maybe through Jolly, I'm not sure. But uh, he got my number and he said, would you guys come and DJ the, uh, oh God, what's that place in Brixton called? The Academy. Academy. Yeah. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out with that. Yeah, I'll get back to you. He said, let us know. He said, um, we've got, we're having an after show party as well. Would you do that? So he said, yeah, okay. And Lepke came down and I said to him, oh, we've been approached by the Clash. I said, yeah, that sounds great. So we loaded the car up with, <laughs> with records. They, they supplied the um, turntables and stuff. We, <laughs> and the funny thing is we phoned uh, Miss P up and we said, uh, you're coming out with us today. And she, <laughs> she was a mother of two young children. But for some reason, she was free that afternoon. So she said, where are we going? We said, we wait and see. So we, she came with us. So there's Lepke, myself, and Miss P. We went down to Brixton. She said, what are we doing here? And we said, we're DJing um, the Clash show. And she had never been to a rock gig, let alone a you know, sort of yeah, quasi-punk punk thing. Punk yeah, thing. Yeah. So we set up the stage and uh, just after the Clash had sound-checked. And then Lepke said, come on, Mike, we'll go and set up the, the, the foyer where we were selling T-shirts as well. So that, again, that was the Clash's yeah, way yeah, of yeah, supporting yeah, us, yeah, you know. Yeah. So we went out into the foyer, we set up in the foyer, and, and Miss P came running, because the doors opened. Miss P came running out to us and said, oh, all these kids are running in and they're all spitting and going crazy. <laughs> she just had never seen anything like it before. And that was before the Clash had even taken to the stage. But yeah. it was their, I think it was their Combat Rock tour. Right, so it was his early 80s, 81, yeah. 82. It would have been about like 82, I yeah, think, yeah, maybe. Yeah. 82. I can't remember the date. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it was fantastic because Joe offered us, I can't remember, I think it was about five, 600 quid to do you know, this day's work for them. So we did, we did all that, and then they had the party in the foyer afterwards. It was great. You know, nice mix of people. Everyone have fun. Finished. And uh, Lepke said to Joe, he said, oh, are we going to get paid now? And Joe, Joe said to uh, his, his manager... It was his Bernie. Was Bernie, it Bernie? could you pay them? <coughs> and Bernie looked at us, sneered, and said no. And Joe just said... I'll I'll cut the expletive. No, he you said, can swear, don't matter. He said, "Just fuck, fucking pay the guys. Come on." Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. And Bernie put his hand in his pocket, pulled out the money, reeled it off, and gave it to us. And that was Joe for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Bernie didn't want to pay you. He didn't want to pay us. He wanted to rip us off. Yeah, well, that sounds about right, doesn't it? You know what I mean? So you had paper then. You I had... don't want any libel actions from this, please. <laughs> yeah, well, don't worry about it. We haven't got no money anyway. Bernie, if you want to sue us, please go right ahead. Yeah, bring it on, Bernie. You so, know what I mean? So yeah, we, we although we were transmitting, we also used to have a lot of fun. I mean, we did a, a thing. I mean, backtrack a little bit. We <coughs> you you started off the show with the um, DVC single. And that was the the backing band on that was uh, Night Doctor. Now Night Doctor, I lodged with the founder of Night Doctor's house in Latimer Road, and also his erstwhile manager, who was also a DBC DJ, Dr. Martin. He wow. lodged there too. And another show of support was from UB40, yeah, who took Night Doctor on tour. I mean, Dr. Martin got the the, the tour for Night Doctor, which was very rare in those days. They actually got paid for supporting, as opposed to 
what was the common way, which was, you know, pay to be on the tour. Yeah. But UB40 allowed us to go to Birmingham and sell DVC merchandise in the foyer for two nights. Two nights, three nights. And then also when they came to London at the Hammersmith Odeon, what was the Hammersmith Odeon, we Mm. did it. I mean, they had their own merchandising thing going, but they said, no, come on, it's it's for a worthy cause. Yeah, they were supporting the music. Exactly. Everyone seems to forget about UB40. Those first two albums are great. Yeah, whether you like like them or loathe them, they put yeah. a lot of money into a lot of people's pockets in, yeah. you know, in the Jamaican music world. You know, the, yeah, yeah. The, their Labour of Love albums have actually put food on the table for a no, lot, right. lot of yeah, people. No, right, yeah, the royalties and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's surprising that any of these people still owned their own royalties to, from what, you know. Well, I, 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 harder, harder <coughs> they come. I was, actually, <laughs> I was actually good friends with Bruce White, the, uh, who was one of the original Trojan people, and he had a Creole Records. Right. And he was a publisher, and he published um, Eric Donaldson's catalogue for him. And they did Cherry O'Baby, as did the right. Rolling Stones. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was Eric Donaldson's retirement fund. Right, yeah, of course, yeah. Well, he wrote it, yeah? He wrote it. Yeah, yeah. And when the Rolling Stones came and uh, covered it, the, the, the Stones were very astute at uh, making people sign publishing over to them or a portion of the publishing over to them. Right, yeah, yeah. For them to do stuff. Yeah, Because right. it's better to have 85% of... Of something rather something than nothing. nothing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they were very... Yeah, because they all... If you look on a lot of the Rolling Stones records, they've got a lot of... You know, R and B and blues covers, which yeah. they, they pay proportional. Ah, uh, right. There you go. Yeah. But also, UB40 covered it, which I can remember. You know, going to Bruce's office and seeing you know silver disc up on the wall for it here. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, yeah. Fair play. I haven't got a problem. I I'm not going to buy any of the records, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I suppose there's another one of those bands that are all warring with each other now. But I don't. I love those first two albums. I know. Most people I know that are into reggae love those first two UB40 albums. Yeah, people forget that they had a huge um, following within the, the black yeah, reggae community. Yeah, they're proper, they're proper dub albums, the yeah. first two. Yeah. Very good. So, you had uh, some of your DJs. When did you start getting your DJs get poached by uh, the big boys? Well, I'm thinking mainly Ranking Miss P here. Uh, Ranking Miss P's story. So let's just cut back to, back to Night Doctor. I mean, Night Doctor did this tour with... Uh, UB40 yeah and then I think one I don't know who proposed it but one evening as you know sort of probably an after because we used to go off when when Night Doctor were gigging we'd off, quite often go off and hang out with them and whatnot. But and then there was always the post gig hangout at Latimer Roads where you know drinks and other cons- com- consumables would be consumed yeah uh, and I can't remember who came up with it it could have been Dr Martin he said why don't we make a record so, yeah, Lepke and I knew nothing about making records. He did. So I think he booked, we used um, Chalk Farm Studios, which was a traditional yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, studio up in Chalk Farm where yeah. all the reggae records used to get dubbed. They used to dub... They the strings on the Trojan they used, to, they used to put yeah. strings on and they used to put synthesizers and all that sort of... And horns on on stuff too. Yeah. Sweeten them up for the, the for English the white, yeah, 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 for the white punters, yeah. So we we had a, a session book there, and Night Doctor, I think they were going off to to do a, a series of gigs. So they'd been rehearsing uh, all afternoon. Now, half the band was from High Wycombe, and half were from London, and they'd been in High Wycombe rehearsing. And they came back up, and we had this session about you know 
11 o'clock at night, you know, studio downtime. Yeah. They were exhausted and they came in and I think about three takes and they put that track down. But at the time they had a um, very talented, the late great Eyewater was over and he was playing with them and he, he really did the arrangement and pulled, pulled them together. So we had the the track done, we got the track done in one evening and then I think the following weekend we booked the studio to voice it and I called up Chris Lane the fashion producer mm. I said to him, Chris, you know we're going in to make a song you know <coughs> how do you produce a female voice <laughs> so he said, well what you do is you darken the studio you light some nice uh, sweet incense and you get the uh, relaxant of choice ready have a relax mm. dim studio looking away from the and then you'll get, get it. on with it so I, I did that I got some incense and we got our relaxants mm. in and stuff um, we got to the studio Miss P came she went straight into the studio didn't have to dim the lights she just went into it one two three and she just came out with that in one take right no no having to go and do any drop-ins or anything she just nailed it in one take so no sooner had she done that next thing i know is lepke's in the studio and he does his rap which he so this is the one we played in the intro it's a sign yeah yeah, which he absolutely hated he couldn't stand listening to it himself but it's brilliant yeah yeah, it's fine yeah yeah shit man (laughs) she she, a lot of people were tuning in for her voice she was sort of like at that very sort of seductive. Well, that's right. I mean, yeah. the the whole, the, the original running order of of DBC. You know, she was one of two female voices. Yeah. Who I quoted as you know the um, the queens of DBC. Um, so we you know the show you the the the, the show on a Friday would start off with Chucky doing a. Uh, it was sort of lighter new release show, which is usually sort of English lovers rock. Very easy going, you know, ease into it. And then there would be, uh, from there, the, we used to, something which Lepke brought back from New York, which was the concept of um, sponsored programming. So if you were a record shop or a record label, you could sponsor that time and you could program what music you wanted to play in it. Yeah. So we used to, the main person who used to do it was Orbitone. And we had another label, which was Cha-Cha up in Hulse, and they used to do it, and Starlight used to do it oh, as well. Yeah, yeah. So they'd pay us maybe 30 quid, and they'd have half an hour slot. And they would choose the records, and they would ask who to present it. So it's usually Miss P they wanted to present. <laughs> but we always used to sort of say, yes, you know, oh, not this week, she's not available to do it, so someone else had to do it. So we'd have that, and then Dr. Martin along with his good friend Smiley, they did an incredible sort of half-hour rhythm and blues jump-up show. It was, they were great fans of the genre, so they had great record collections. Uh, and after that, we used to have, I think, I, I'm a bit hazy here, but I think we either used to do a soul show. Yes, we went into a soul music show, which was uh, presented by Lady Di. She was the first voice of DBC but the selector was her husband Dark Star who, right. who in life is Lloyd Bradley the, the writer author. yeah yeah so it was Dark Star and Lady Die they did the soul show and then it went into Miss P 
Now, the original idea of the Miss P show was supposed to be sort of a female slanted show, but she picked up such a huge male audience because, she, as you say, she had a yeah. very seductive, very clear voice. And her show became incredibly popular. She was a bit of a reluctant DJ as well, wasn't she? You had to Originally, yes. She, yeah. she, she, had, she had two young children at the time. And, uh, she's Lepke's sister. She's yeah. Lepke's sister. And Dr. Watt helped build her studio. So she had a home studio like Lepke did. Um, so she was able to do it at her leisure in the week. But invariably, it would be finished five minutes before she was due on air. <laughs> but uh, she was very, very talented. And then after her, they would, we would have um, an African music program. And I think we can claim, lay claim to being the first radio station to have a dedicated African music show. Yeah. And originally, that was presented by Megan Green's partner and Charlie Wood from Night Doctor. But they didn't last very long. They only, they only did a few weeks. They thought it should be done by someone else. And then we got in a... Um, he was a working DJ who we knew called uh, Gus, Gus Dada Africa, who was a Nigerian. He, you know, he worked at Rough Trade one time as a, their motorcycle messenger. He was a DJ at Dingwalls. So he right. was on the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he did, used to do a great African show. And then we'd have a revive music show, which Dr. Watt used to do. And again, he had a home studio, so he used to have little effects on his stuff. Right, Always right. a great selection. And then it used to cap off with Lepke doing his Dread Out of the Control show. And his shows were just wild because he had, in his home studio, he had a space echo and he had syndromes and he had right. duck calls and he he used to mix stuff into the... Yeah, they, they were just wild. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So that was the that was the running order of the show so that was a sort of a set thing so people used to tune in at particular times yeah so this was every friday every friday yeah yeah yeah. so you then went right so ranking miss p got poached by radio one yeah poached was it poached or it was a sort of an organic move to her to radio one because um you know i'm coming up to it in my blog actually how she got how she got uh, into well, the I'll BBC. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, leave that there then. So, we should read this blog because it's really good. I just read the first, you've only done one instalment so far, or no, did I? No, oh, there are a few, is there? There's quite a lot. All right, I did right. No, so no, I did, no, I'll tell, I'll, tell on, you, I'll tell you the story. About 83, I think it was, Lepke was away, and Miss P and I were. We used to do the day-to-day sort of running of the... the, There was less running around to do, because back in the early days, Dr. Watt, Lepke and I, we used to drive all around London tuning people into the show with flyers and going into shops and just talking to people. But as we were up and running and established, that was not needed quite so much. So Miss P and I used to do the collecting of money from sponsored radio programmes and stuff like that. But I went back to work at Better Badges... Right, Jolly had left, and I had taken over Better Badges with the, one of the other designers, Slim Smith. And I used to go off and rep for Better Badges at the same time as doing DBC stuff. Right. So I went into Island Records one day, where we were loved. I mean, they, the, the people at Island... I mean, Trevor, Trevor Wyatt and the, the, the people in the promo... Is this Basin Street? No, this is yeah. in uh, Hammersmith. It's right, Peter okay. Square. 
they used to you know greet us like friends so we used to go and the promo department were fantastic you know we'd go into the promo department and they'd literally open up the cupboard and they'd just say help yourselves I mean, oh, we, nice. could, we, we could have just emptied the promo cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> so I went into the promo department one day because they had a huge open plan. They used to call it the war room, you know, sort of office. And mm. I went in and there was this guy with his back to me. And the girl in the promo department said, oh, hi, DBC. How's it all going? And he turned around. And he said, DBC? I said, yeah. He said, oh. He said, I'd listen to your show. And I said, I'm, I'm, I live in Bristol. I said, how do you listen to the show? He said, oh, because this friend of mine gives me tapes. Now, the guy who gave him tapes was a friend of Jolly's. Jolly used to send him tapes. And then Andy used to copy the tapes and give them to this guy, Roy, who was Roy Chapman, who was a BBC... He was actually an independent film producer. And he said, I'd really like to make a film. So I didn't have a business card or anything. We'd swap phone numbers. And he, he phoned me up. Um, we arranged to meet. By this time, we had our own studio up in Kilburn. And he came down from a meeting in the centre of town at the BBC, came down into the studio, sat down, opened up his briefcase, <coughs> rolled one up, <laughs> as you do. Yeah. Uh, Wouldn't expect anything else on a reggae station, With really, uh, Miss P and myself. And he said, oh, by the way, how much do your transmitters cost and I just said off the top of my head oh about 600 quid he said right that's your facility fee I said what he said yeah but well, that's what you're going to get paid for you, us using our studio and they didn't really use the studio that much yeah um, but we made a film which was actually at that particular carnival so they did a little bit of filming in the uh, in the in our studio then they came down and we had a sound up on the corner of Bravington Road and Portobello and they filmed there and, and they made a film and I think it went out on Channel 4 not on BBC 2 but he was so impressed by Miss P mm. both in her professionalism and her voice that he got her a job I think singing a um, singing a an introduction to a, a, a program that he was making, which she recorded up on the Harrow Road with King Sounds. They they made right. they made that thing, and then she got voiceover work for the BBC. Right, and that's how. She, and then they offered her the Culture Rock radio, program. but that was after we had packed up doing DBC. She right. got the she got the Culture Rock. So she, she was on there a long time as well, wasn't she? What doing the BBC yeah. thing? Yeah, she did. She did a lot. But she wasn't really poached from us and oh, then okay. into the BBC. She, DBC had sort of ceased, ah. and then she carried on doing, right, okay. doing work because very talented lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you went from Friday nights, then you got a, you moved to Kilburn, and it was studio in Kilburn. We had this studio in Where Kilburn. Where was that in Kilburn? Uh, it's no longer there. It's, okay. uh, it was above a motorcycle shop, opposite the Queen's Arms pub, top of Maida Vale. Queens. I think it's called the Queen's Arms Pub. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! I know what you mean. I think, a... I think it's. I think it's. Oh the, yeah, it's where the, the Marriott... cinema used to be. Where that Marriott Hotel is now. That's where the yeah, Marriott Hotel yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I forgot about that bike shop. Well, <laughs> the, the studio is another story because I, I can't remember how we got the keys, but it was Fifth Column, our T-shirt printers, original right. print works, and they moved out. And somehow we got the keys. I think they probably gave Lepke the keys. And right. we moved in. 
But we never paid a penny in rent. Handy. We never paid a penny in electricity <laughs> bills. We basically squatted the place. Yeah. And no one ever came for us. And Lepke had, um, and Dr. Watt decorated the studio. They, they did red, golden, green door. And someone donated us a wonderful pair of uh, Garrard uh, studio quality turntables and on a plywood plinth. And, and they painted that in red, golden, green. So it was very red, golden, green up there. And we ha- also were able to store all the promo So where records. was the transmitter when you were there then? We were still do, going out on a Friday oh, night. Right. We used to, yeah. okay. What, what happened, would happen would be um, Lepke would record his show in his home studio. That was then a, a good facility for the DJs who didn't have home studios to use to record the, right. the, sh- the shows. So, so you, had, you would go in, what, 24 hours by this time? No, that was still six hours. And right. then what happened was a lot of the other pirates all started to go on 24 hours. Yeah. And there was always this mythical, um, I can't remember what they, what, what they used to call it. Um, the, 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 there was some kind, there was a legal, te- uh, it's a technicality, the loophole, that was it. Right, okay. They called it the loophole. Yeah. And no one would tell us what the loophole was. And then we found out what the loophole was, which was you put your transmitter in situ and you write a letter of confession saying, I own this transmitter. And then you transmit to the transmitter. Yeah. So if the DTI came along, they couldn't take the transmitter. They'd take the letter and then they'd have to apply to the court to come and... Right, so they basically have to get some sort of judgment. Yeah, yeah, it's a stalling measure. Yeah, right, okay. So we we tried it, you know, with uh, Edward Woods, but I think the microwave signal to Edward Woods wasn't very good. And then we found this, uh, again, Lepke was wonderful, sort of mixing with the most weird and wonderful people. We had a a lady who lived, and I can't remember what the the road's called, but it's up in Notting Hill Gate. Very well to do. Right. She loved the idea of having a transmitter on her roof. Right. So we put it up there, and the microwave link worked perfectly. That's pretty high up there as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, So... We were up and running 24 hours. Right. But that also had its problems because... You've got to fill up all the you got to time. fill the time, yeah. A lot of those pirate stations, you'd go on there. I remember I'd come home from a club and you think, right, I'll stick them on. And they just used to loop adverts sometimes. They used to run out of stuff and you'd just get Orbitone or Jetstar or one of those Harlesden-based record companies. And it'd just do that in your art about 10 minutes. Think, right, let's find another one, man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a lot of that. Lepke did knock up a few sort of uh, chat-free uh, tapes, which would be music with yeah. with jingles in, um, for continuity. You know, just a DJ doesn't turn up, the next DJ puts it on yeah. and leaves. By this time, I'd moved out to Lapton Road, and I was living with um, <clears throat> my lady of the time, and I was halfway between here and Kilburn, so I was sort of the key holder. Right. Uh, she came on board and was given the, um, the the job of presenting a 60s soul show, which she wasn't too happy with, but she actually did a sterling job. And again, that was way before anyone had a dedicated 60s soul yeah, yeah, yeah. program. So we were, you know, it was, you just have to bear in mind you know, some of the things we did. I mean, it's looking back on it now, 
it all comes to light. You know, some of the things which we we did. You know, we have female presenters. Yeah. We had an African music show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a sixty soul music show. We had sponsored programming. And one of the other things which is really, you know, Lepke was never sort of, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. But he was very fussy about who went on the station. He wanted natural voices. And so we had a diverse range of voices. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes he even used to have me present, you know. Toffee, to- toffee nose voice, <laughs> yeah. But it was to, yeah. The whole idea was, you know, communication and communicating um, naturally. No being smashy and nicey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no DJ was ever allowed to come on the station without being chosen. Yeah, but that's good. Yeah. Maybe so if, if you went control. up to Lepke and said, "I want to be on the on the station," he would say, "Make me a tape." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had to work and no one did, it. you know, very no, few yeah, did. Yeah. We had one guy who did a soul show who, he was okay, but there was something, I don't know, he had a, a run-in with, because it was like a family. The whole thing was like run like a family. You had to, everyone had to get on with everyone. There was no bickering, because we used to go and socialise together. Yeah, right, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it was, it come a, lot, a lot of those stations, it came across like that, really. I used to listen to you. Not on Fridays, but I think it must have been when you went 24 hours 